Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk About Birth. Let's Talk About Birth. Our podcast that talks about pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and all of the issues that go along with those things. Coronavirus. From the perspective of both myself and my husband. I am Ashley Carver, a student midwife and childbirth educator, and this is my husband, Taylor. I'm Taylor, and I have a wife who knows a lot about birth, so in turn, I know a small amount of birth. <laughs> um, so yeah, today we thought we would talk about not the coronavirus, but... The elections? No. Okay. No politics. But we were going to talk about what giving birth in a hospital is really like, because mm. I feel like um, the reason that I thought about doing this as a podcast episode is because um, the coronavirus thing is happening right now. It's um, March 27th, 2020, when we're recording this. So there are women who are giving birth or planning to give birth in the hospital, but who are understandably potentially nervous about going into that environment, the hospital environment, to give birth to a tiny little baby mm -hmm. during a pandemic of coronavirus. So, so yeah, we... Uh, but we, we're talking about giving birth in a hospital all times right not so, just during yes the pandemic i'm not positive about how it looks currently to give birth in a hospital besides the um the notion that i heard that women are not able to bring in anyone with them to give birth besides mm. their partner and in some cases the partner can even can't even go with them in the birthing room mm -hmm. i just saw a picture on instagram of this woman who had to give birth with her partner in the hallway looking mm. through the door mm. so that seems crazy to me anyway better safe than sorry <laughs> so yes this is not about giving birth in a hospital during a pandemic this is what giving birth in a hospital on a normal day-to-day -day basis is like because i feel like for a lot of first-time moms especially they have no idea what it's actually like mm -hmm. to give birth. People talk about the feelings or the sensations that come up in the body or like all kinds of other things besides the, the fact that, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening in the environment in which they're mm. giving birth. Yeah. And that's kind of what we talked about in not the last podcast, but the previous podcast is kind of like the environment um, a little bit mm -hmm. of giving birth at home um and why that matters so much so yeah environment is is huge that's very true yes so first i think i will just walk through what an average hospital birth looks like when you get to the hospital and then we'll talk a little bit about why these things matter during birth so yeah first when you are you know in labor you go to the hospital whenever it's time for you to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. A lot of times this is during active labor. So when your contractions are, you know, five minutes apart, lasting one minute each. So um, 
when you get to the hospital, you are going to go through the admission process. So usually you can fill out the paperwork ahead of time so you don't have to do that while you're in active labor, yeah. which sounds miserable to me. But yeah. sometimes, for some reason, certain hospitals don't offer this. Um, can the partner do this? Um, sometimes, yeah. Mm. Oh, so yeah. sometimes... Sometimes the... it has to be the actual birthing woman who's like signing and filling mm. out things. <laughs> so... What Regardless if, of whether you fill out the paperwork ahead of time, mm -hmm. you will be having to answer questions, some of which are, are on that paperwork that you have to answer again, which is an, always annoying to everyone who I've worked with as a doula. I used to be a doula, so I've attended a, um, my fair share of hospital births. So you're answering questions while you're in active labor, but every, everyone in the hospital knows that you're in active labor, so there's understanding. Right. You know, you can take a break or like yeah. not talk for a while and everyone's going to be like okay she's in labor that's fine another thing they do when you get there is they give you a cervical check so they're putting their hand inside your vagina mm -hmm. that must be uncomfortable yes as you're in labor to check the mm -hmm. dilation of your cervix so you can always refuse anything yeah that's important I yeah. emphasize that anything mm-hmm you can say no to no matter what yeah the only thing with that is that it sucks to have to fight for what you want while you're in labor right and it sucks for the partner also to have to do that or the i mean some women have a doula but you, a lot of women don't have a doula and it's them and their partner having to advocate for themselves right which i don't i don't really understand the idea of like fighting an uphill battle while you're also in labor like right. that's not my cup of tea so um, I understand that some women have to give birth in the hospital and that's fine but just yeah just to kind of spell out what it looks like um, so yeah the cervical check and then they'll check for the heart tones of the baby how do they do that by either using a Doppler mm -hmm. or an ultrasound wand and a Doppler for people a Doppler is like a little handheld um, device that you press against a pregnant woman's belly. It's electronic? It, yes. And mm -hmm. you can, it uses ultrasound waves to hear the fetal heart tones. Okay. So you'll have Doppler or ultrasound wand, or you'll have um, this belt that has two sensors attached to it strapped around your belly. So this belt has the sensors. One is feeling your contractions and the other one is hearing the baby's heartbeat okay um and so you can also do you can also refuse this obviously i don't have to keep saying that over and over again you can refuse any of these but there's different types of fetal monitoring belts there's the mobile kind quote unquote mobile kind which still has like cords everywhere and a little pack that you have to carry around on your shoulder if you oh. want to be mobile Oh, okay. But it's regardless, it's this belt that you have to keep wearing throughout your, the entire process. And as you're your entire birth. Yes. Unless oh. you choose to do intermittent mm. um, fetal monitoring. Where they check it like once an hour. Or something. Yeah. Every 15 minutes in what is active the, labor. Why? Let me ask you two questions. Why is that quote unquote necessary? Or why does the hospital do that? And also, 
why would someone want to refuse that? So the hospital does this because the hospitals are wanting to, quote unquote, make sure the baby is safe. You know, realistically, babies are safe and born well in healthy women 99% of the time. But hospitals are averse to risk. Right. You know, they have insurance companies that mandate these things. So they're, mm, right. usually their insurance company is saying you have to. Right. You can't, you don't want to do what the mom wants you to do. You have to do what we want you to do. Right. Because we're your insurance company. So that is your first sense that, you know, the hospital is not a place that is always super mother friendly, regardless of what kind of certification as mother friendly they have. Okay. So even the, the reason that a woman might not want this is because first of all, it's annoying to have anything on your body, clothes, underwear, whatever, or an EFM belt, an electronic fetal monitor belt. Um, and second of all, as your, as your baby moves down, the belts need to be constantly adjusted. They are like slipping off oh. or they're being, you know, misplaced right. or you, they're like moving to a place that can't hear the baby's heart rate mm. rate. And then the nurses has to come in and try and so adjust it's just it. It's like a lot of, it's a lot of commotion messing and, with yeah. the woman while she's in labor, labor, you know, and you want to just be relaxed and yeah. what have you during labor. Is that's, that right? that's ideal. Like if you think about how all other mammals give birth. Like, we all know that dogs and cats, because those are our pets, go to a quiet, dark area, like a closet or under a car or a box in the garage, away yeah. from people. Yeah, so women, so that if they... they want to have peace and quiet, they should go give birth in a box <laughs> in, in the garage. garage right? No, no. Um, <laughs> I would say if you want peace and quiet, a hospital or a birthing center with all of these regulations... Um, is probably not the place to go. By the way, if you hear noises in the background, those are our children. Our babysitter is watching our children while we make this um, podcast episode. They're fine. Yeah, they're fine. So uh, <laughs> another thing that happens upon admission in the hospital is you get an IV placement. So they're going to hook you up to an IV this is um, a in your veins. In a kind vein, of thing. yeah. Okay. So they're giving you fluids. Um, sometimes, if you're group B strep positive, they'll give you antibiotics. <clears throat> excuse me, penicillin or whatever um, through this IV as well. But regardless of whether you have anything, they're hooking you up to an IV. They're hooking you up to something. You can refuse the IV, and then they will say, okay, well, you have to have a saline lock instead. Or sometimes in places it's called a HEP lock because they used to use heparin, but now they use saline. Anyway, the saline lock is a needle that goes into your vein, but it's not connected to a tube that goes to um, a stand that's connected to like a saline bag. It's just the, the needle in your vein and then taped down. Right. So that if there's, quote unquote, if there's an emergency, you know, they don't have to do the IV placement in an emergency situation. They've already got it done ahead of time. Oh, so this is kind of like you, they'll have an IV in you and you could potentially just have the IV in and go through your entire birth without actually 
without needing it right without having it hooked up to fluids you just have the needle in your vein <sighs> so taped to your hand that sounds stupid <laughs> for uh, so many different reasons to me like you don't want a needle in your arm while you're giving birth the whole time mm -hmm. and also when you might not even need it right <laughs> so like we said earlier hospitals are risk and risk right. averse right so they're thinking of the worst case scenario right because sometimes they do see the worst case scenario right but for the very very small percentage of women who experience the worst case scenario um i don't think it's worth making right. every literally every other woman who comes in to give birth have the same kind of treatment as the worst case scenario right you know what because i'm saying their goal is to get the baby out alive and and that's it yeah but birth get... is about so much more than that right you know there's all these it's a other spiritual process and... it's a physical and emotional process like that have lifelong consequences mm -hmm. if you have a certain kind of poor birth experience or a positive one it can have mm -hmm. positive consequences or uh negative ones yeah. yeah so anyways okay so the the iv is in you yeah iv uh, or saline lock or you can also refuse this but while we're talking about refusal we should also talk about the idea that if you are refusing any of these things that they recommend like efm or saline lock or iv mm -hmm. then you might have to sign what's called an ama form and this Ask is a, anything no this is a form that is a, it means you're going against medical advice mm -hmm. so they're already putting kind of like this fear right in your mind and making it like a me versus you kind of conflict yeah. situation right just for having your own idea about what's best for your body and your baby right so just putting that out there another thing that you have to do is put on a hospital gown and this, some people might not think is a big deal, like, okay, what's the big deal? It's a hospital gown. But if you think about people's maybe psychological response to putting on the uniform of a hospital, which mm. is where sick, sick people usually are, mm. we have so many, you know, energetic and emotional cords tied to certain situations. Like maybe we went to visit our grandpa in the hospital when he mm -hmm. was wearing a hospital gown. And like mm. we associate hospital gown with you know being taken care of by someone else or being sick and it doesn't really feel empowering mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so that's another thing and it also shows just thinking about things in this way kind of lets you real helps you realize that like these aren't just like baseline or surface level things mm -hmm. like putting on a gown seems like whatever you know, but it actually has other implications that we might not always think about. So then after all of that, after you're admitted, you're made to sit in a wheelchair and be wheeled into your birthing room. Okay. You can also choose to walk, but they bring in the chair and they say, okay, sit in the chair. We're going to go to your birthing room. So it doesn't leave a lot of room for like, especially when you're in the middle of labor. You're like, oh, do I want to walk down this long hallway to yep. my birthing room or do I want someone to like just wheel me in there so I can do whatever I want yeah. so um that's another thing to think about then you're in your hospital room and this is um moving on to 
your labor process. So you have a bed in there. Obviously, if you were giving birth anywhere else, you would have a bed as well. But just the idea, the fact that there's only one small room and it just has a bed in it. You know, if like, for example, you're at your house, you have your bathroom, you have, I mean, you have a bathroom at the hospital too, but it's... Well, it's a hospital bathroom. It's a public hospital bathroom. Yeah. And you're usually pretty gross in my um, experience. And you've worked at quote unquote nicer hospitals. Right. Yes. So... I've worked at a, a wide range of quality, quote unquote, quality of hospitals. And they're all, they all have like pretty, um, like I wouldn't want to like maybe in labor at home, I would, I wanted to like be on all like hands and knees on the floor of my bathroom rocking back and forth. I wouldn't yeah. do that at a hospital. Right. So it kind of restricts you in this way. And just having the bed there as the main focus of the, of the room. Plus if you have an IV or these electronic right. fetal monitoring belts, You're just like it's there. like, kind of trapping you in that yeah. area you right. know what i'm saying so it's it's definitely um not super ideal if you're wanting to have a lot of mobility and move how your body wants while it's in labor so women naturally want to move around during usually uh, yeah labor? usually there's very intuitive movements that we see like you're not actually thinking oh, I need right. to move this way so that my baby can come out more easily. Yeah. But your body just knows, and women move intuitively when mm-hmm. they're allowed to. Right. You know? Um, so you have a nurse coming in, you know, every 30 minutes or more frequently than that um, to check you and see how you're doing and asking you questions. And uh, also, secretly, a lot of times they're checking to see how you're how well you are coping with the labor sensations you know Mm. and sometimes they'll be like sometimes they'll ask you silly questions like is the pain too much now or how much pain are you feeling Mm. they're framing the question as like right assuming that you're in pain right that's the way that their mind is working right because they are there to save you from that experience you know they don't think of anyway i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole (laughs) so um so yeah so she's checking you is she checking with her hands in the woman's uh, vagina or um yes you'll have cervical checks throughout your experience um if a lot of hospitals they won't do them regularly like on a schedule Mm -hmm. only if you request it Mm. and um this is has it's like a double-sided coin because you could get checked and you could be at four centimeters and then an hour later you can be like oh my god the last hour has been hell i want to get checked to see how much progress i've made Mm. and then you get checked again and you're at four centimeters yeah you know so cervical dilation isn't necessarily a barometer of what actually is happening it's not a progress marker right necessarily because people can be at four centimeters for like five hours and then then within like 30 minutes their baby's coming out you know right so that is another way that like emotionally psychologically mm-hmm. we're affected you know because we don't have someone a lot of times we don't have someone in the room being like okay if you want to get checked that's fine but just realize if you haven't made any progress in inches or centimeters You're doing air quotes right there yeah progress if you haven't made any progress in centimeters then you are not, not... in the same spot as you were before necessarily so that and you're not moving forward right like you're not yeah yeah so 
cervical checks if you request them or some hospitals do them on a schedule, which is stupid, I think, because there's so many, there's like a billion studies about the more cervical checks you get when you're in labor, the exponential rise in your risk of infection. Mm, because so, they're like going into your vagina? Yeah. Like, when you're in labor, the energy is flowing down. Out of your, yeah. Fluids are flowing down, mm. you know? And when you have someone's hand going in and up, moving right. everything towards the baby and towards your uterus, right. that's open, you know? Right, right. It doesn't have the protection of the mucus plug or the cervix being closed or anything. Then you're way higher um, chances. You have way higher chances of getting an infection. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're getting monitored. If you don't have one of those belts on, if someone's coming in every 15 minutes during active labor to listen to the baby. Um, listen to the baby's heartbeat? Yeah. Um the lights are usually weird in hospital rooms. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have dimmer switches, but sometimes they're just on, like full blast on. Yeah. So that, you know, thinking back to our example of like a cat giving birth, they go to the dark place right. because that's conducive to giving birth. Not laying on their back looking up at these bright ass white hospital, hospital lights. lights. Yeah. Another thing that's so weird that like all of my clients have complained about who have given birth in the hospital is the temperature. Hmm. The temperature of the room is usually freezing Mm. and that's not conducive to opening and releasing your baby. In the entire hospital, it's, it's cold. Yeah. It's usually freezing. And then they have this thermometer out. It's all, it's the same thermometer in all hospital rooms (laughs) I've been in. It's not like press the arrow up to put one more degree and make it warmer. It's like a slider. So you slide it from cooler to the center or to like warmer. You know what I'm saying? So you can slide it to like, oh, it's cold in here. I'm going to slide it to the center to get it warmer. And it makes the difference in the temperature like 15 degrees. So then the mom's like in active labor and she's sweating. Sweating. (laughs) And she's like, oh, my God. It's like it makes some women like feel nauseous, you know, more so than they would. And she's like, oh, my God, turn it down. It's so hot in here. And then you turn it back down and it drops the temperature like 10 degrees. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. like something that's intuitive and feels good. It's just like right. either cold or hot right. and like these extremes of temperature yeah. that you don't have control over. It's one more thing that you don't have control over. And something that people don't actually think about when they're giving birth in a hospital. Right. So sometimes they'll also be like, sneaky about things right you know like the nurse will come in and she'll put a bag of pitocin on you know the monitor this has happened to one of my clients she's doing beautifully Hmm. she's a first-time mom she goes to the hospital in active labor she's already like seven centimeters dilated and then like an hour and a half or two hours later the nurse comes in and she's like i'm just gonna put this pitocin here in case we need it later and for those of you who don't know pitocin is synthetic oxytocin and they use this in the hospital to make labor faster. Basically, they have like a timetable that they expect most normal labors to be, air quotes, expect most normal labors to be on. And if you don't fall in that curve, then and they feel like they, or... they need to control the, you know, the birth in that way by right. speeding it up. But in your experience... Uh seven-hour labor is normal Mm -hmm. and as well as a 48-hour or plus. Yeah. 
is normal, right? So average birth time for first-time moms. Um, and I'm not sure if the statistic... Yeah, I think it, it's natural, like without any augmentation, is 24 hours. That's hmm. the average for first-time moms. So there are some first-time moms who go for like three days. Right. You know, two days. And there are some first-time moms who give birth in like six hours. Yeah. So it really depends. And I think first-time moms should kind of just expect to go for at least 48 hours, yeah. you know, in and out. Well, I mean, yeah. If that, that, if, that that's a possibility. Yeah, Not that it will happen. Yeah, and if you're expecting 48 hours and then you give birth in 24, you're like, oh, right. man, this is awesome. Right. Like for my first birth, I was expecting 24 hours. Yeah. Because that was the average. Mm -hmm. But I was like 16. 16. Mm -hmm. So I felt like really good about that, about that <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, but yeah, it was super easy. I've also had um, experience with people whose nurses will actually, especially if they have the IV in, mm -hmm. you know, they'll give them Pitocin without yeah. telling them about mm -hmm. it. That is insane. Right. That is illegal also. So they might, you know, mention... Oh, I'm just going to give you a little something in your IV to help things along, you know? Yeah. And then you can but say... But it's like you're getting... Yes or no. Oxy. You're getting Pitocin. Pitocin, I know. Yeah. But it's a... Um, what is it called? Not a sedative, but a... It's, it's a, a drug. It's a hormone. It's a... Yeah. yeah it's I mean, a it's synthetic like hormone. Basically like heroin almost. No. Not um, like heroin, but it's a... It's not an opiate. Oh, it's not an opiate? No. Pitocin is not an opiate. Pitocin oh, is a oh. synthetic version okay, of oxytocin. See, this is why I, yeah, this is why I keep you on. <laughs> You're thinking of an epidural, which has like oh, fentanyl in it, okay. which is an opiate. Okay, okay. Oh, or sometimes okay. they give people morphine, okay. which is an opiate as well. Right, right. So yeah, we have a friend actually who had Pitocin put in her IV without um, anyone talking to her about it ahead of time. And she yelled at them and made them turn it off. Yeah. So, um, but that's crazy. Give, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So I think the general idea, I'm thinking of another story, is that um, hospital staff is generally doing what works for them. Right. Like you go into their territory mm -hmm. and you're on their time schedule and you're doing things that they want you to do instead mm -hmm. of being connected to the process and doing it however it wants to work for you. So another thing that a story that I was just thinking about is this first time mom was in the hospital. She was progressing really well. She hadn't been there for that long at all. I think we were there for probably like six. Uh, maybe eight hours total. So that's really good for, I mean, that I was there, you know, Yeah. from the time that I got there when they got there to the, to like two hours, an hour and a half after the baby. It was like eight hours. So she was doing really well. She was like in her zone. She, uh, had them check her cervix to see how much progress she had made since she got in. And she was almost, she was completely dilated, but she had a little lip and this happens very often because of sometimes the baby's position or there's usually like in the front side of your cervix it just takes a little bit longer to dilate and yeah. that's completely normal right but she was like oh you have a little um lip of your cervix here let me hold it to the side and you can push the baby through which for a first time mom 
is super dangerous because her cervix isn't as stretchy mm. as a mom who's had babies before. Mm -hmm. And there have been studies about this causing tearing right, right. or, you know, damaging the cervix, like in terms of nerve damage and stuff like that. So it's like pretty much never a good idea to do that, even in a woman who's had, you know, many babies before, unless she really wants that mm -hmm. to be happening. But in a first time mom who doesn't know any better, just having a nurse who's like, okay, I'm going to hold your cervix to the side without, kind of she wasn't feeling the urge to push, Right. you know, she wasn't there yet. Right. Her body obviously wasn't there yet either. Right. But this nurse had this idea. Baby needs to come that, out. Yeah. It was sooner. time for her to start pushing the baby right. out. So she had, she reached her whole hand oh my God. up to her wrist into this mom's vagina oh and God. held the cervix to the side. Wow while the mom pushed without feeling the desire to push with the hand and that yes. seems counterintuitive yeah you gotta you're holding the lip or the cervix to the side but you got your whole freaking hand yeah. inside of her yeah that makes no sense yeah and in this case the partner was like uh is this a good idea like he knew yeah, yeah. He intuitively knew. yeah but you're just kind of like uh and uh i was like well we can take a pause. We can take a break. You can ask your partner if she wants this done. And of course, once it's already suggested and in the air, the mom is usually like, yeah, I want to get my labor over with. I want to meet right. my baby, you know, after all of this and gone through. quote unquote, get this over with. Yeah. Sometimes. So, of course, she was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, she doesn't yeah. know the pros and cons, the risks, you right. know? So anyway, yeah, it was just, that's another example of like, you're going into their, um, their arena where they right. have their rules. Like if you were at a home birth, it's just very invasive. Yeah. What it's very invasive and it's, they're thinking they need to control the process the right. whole time right? because they think of it as a scary or dangerous process, whether that's, you know, in, you know, consciously or subconsciously that's what they feel because that's what they've been taught and they think they're here to swoop in and like save right the process from going off the rails right. basically um another thing that i want to mention while you're while we're here in this um birthing phase of being in the hospital is that it's really really hard to resist getting an epidural mm. when you're in that environment for sure and i'm not shaming anyone who chooses an epidural because they don't want to feel the sensations of labor or whatever like that's yeah. totally fine you during your labor i'm just not throwing you under the bus but just yeah. no, no, letting no. other yeah. people know that you're really not shaming yeah because during your labor with mazzy, mazzy your first yeah our first baby you uh at one point in time was like i want to go to the hospital I want to get an epidural. I don't give a fuck. Like yeah. all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? That's, that's what it's like during transition for yeah. pretty much everyone. Every woman who goes, who has a baby goes through this period after she's, you know, fully dilated or close to being fully dilated. But before it's time to push the baby out, there's a surge of adrenaline that yeah. happens and you kind of like freak out a little bit, Right. but it's what your body needs in order to like go into the next phase of pushing the baby out. Right. But like, we're not used to feeling that, right. you know, and when we do feel it, it's because we're being like scared. Like if someone's coming up behind us in an alleyway or something, right. like that's when you get a surge of yeah. adrenaline in real life. So when it happens during birth, you're like, 
almost feels like you're crawling out of your skin. You're like, I need to, you know, get out of here. I need yeah. help. Someone, yeah. someone yeah. like save me from this, you know? Yeah. That's so, really the perfect description. Yeah. Just like help. Yeah. Like, <gasps> yeah. So when you're in that zone or even before or after that, like it's really hard to not take the epidural even i have had clients who are like so staunchly against mm. an epidural because they know the side effects and they don't want that for themselves or their baby but then they get into the hospital transition hits and it's hard right it's like the hardest thing that you'll ever have to go through in your life mm. pretty much and they ask for an epidural mm. because that's where they're at you know that's they're in that environment right well they have they ask for it but I'm assuming it has been also offered to them. No, in this case that I'm thinking, I mean, yeah, potentially in many cases, but in the case that I'm thinking, it wasn't offered. Mm. But she, they know it's on the menu. Yeah. And it was in her birth plan. Don't talk to me about pain relief because mm. I don't want it. But then she actually wanted it when it came to transition because wow. that's where yeah. she was. And that, you know what? She got her epidural and her baby was born 30 minutes later because that's how that works. So, not always. Well, transition is like you're almost there. Oh, right, right, right. You're so almost not the because line. of the epidural. Right. But because sometimes the epidural can help you relax and open and release your baby, and like that's how you give birth in a hospital right. because you're so you're not wanting you to almost, release the baby right. because you're consciously or subconsciously you're afraid. So almost like or you don't feel safe. You need the epidural. Or some some people yeah, do. Yeah, some women do. You almost need it to get through a birth yeah. at a hospital. There's women who stall at like six centimeters, and they don't get any further than that. They're working so so hard. I'm thinking of one of our friends in particular, and it's because they're in an environment where they don't feel safe, and that's like don't feel comfortable. Yeah, they. That's one of the transition points. You know, like six centimeters is kind of like mm -hmm. that's where things can kind of like stall or keep going or gain momentum or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of women will just stall at that point and they need the epidural to kind of like relax and let go and open and like mm -hmm. mask almost yeah. their subconscious I mean, that's or why conscious fear. Yeah, that's have true. You know, there's also women who just want an epidural in the very beginning because they don't want to feel anything, and that's totally oh, fine. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, what I'm saying is there's no shame in getting an epidural, but if you're really not wanting one, then you have to be super aware and vigilant in the hospital because when you're in that weak spot, it's not a weak spot. When you're in vulnerable. that vulnerable spot, yeah. it's hard to... Um, hard to resist and it's hard to be in an environment that doesn't align with your ideals right. of not wanting an epidural right you know they don't care they want you to have an epidural right they're not going to ever say are you sure <laughs> yeah if you ask for an <laughs> epidural they're never going to try to convince you not to get one yeah so yeah next let's move on to giving birth Ooh, so part usually you're hooked up to a monitor and you are laying in bed on your back and i don't know if um anyone knows about pelvic anatomy but your tailbone i don't <laughs> your tailbone moves a lot especially when you're um, pregnant because you have all this hormone called relaxin relaxing all of your joints i want some relaxing your sacrum and your tailbone move so much but if you're laying on your back no movement 
there's not movement because the bed is pressing against your sacrum and your tailbone. Yeah. So that's... Oh, so you just... I mean, I wish people could see yeah. the hand motion you just did, but it's yeah. perfect because it's... Yeah, it's pressing yeah. up. A, it's it, like closing it. actually it. narrows the outlet yeah. of your pelvis yeah, to I lay just, on your back. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So upright is always optimal and as long as that mom wants upright to do or that. On hands and knees yeah that's a version of upright oh okay yeah. um but uh on the hospital most i would say 99.8 percent of hospital care providers who deliver who facilitate birth in the hospital do not allow their patients to be in any position but on their back sometimes you can convince them to go and use a squat bar hmm. um but for some reason, I found that nurses are annoyed with people who want to do the squat bar. Usually, um, labor and delivery units have, like, a set number of squat bars. There's not, like, one for each bed. There's a limited amount. And then they have to go, like, track one down and find it, you mm. know? So I feel like... Uh, uh, yeah. She wants a squat bar. Yeah. Sometimes it's, like, a pain in their neck to do that for some reason. Um. But yeah, most doctors, OBGYNs, will only um, allow, quote unquote, allow the woman to give birth on her back. So if you want to give birth in any other position, you're having to fight an uphill battle. You have to basically just like literally do whatever you want and like have people telling you one thing. Okay, get in the bed. Okay, the baby's coming. Get in the bed and lay on your back. And you just have to like tune them out and do whatever you want instead. If you want to give birth in any other position. Sounds fun. While you're in, yeah, pushing your baby out, yeah. So usually there's also coached pushing, um, which, oh, by the way, I'm talking about all these things happening and people talking to you, but when it's time to push your baby out, there's an influx of, like, many people into your room. Hmm. There's usually one or two, um, there's usually, like, a pediatrician, um, if you have risk factors, there's like two people who can perform neonatal resuscitation if need be. Um, and then there's like the doctor and the doctor's assistant and, you know, at least one or two, it's usually two nurses who are in there. So that's a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of strangers. If you're at a teaching hospital, then you have students in your in room. In addition to all those people. Yes. So you got a room full of like... Strangers. Strangers, but a lot of them. Yeah. While you got your legs a lot of people open. thinking and having their own energy and right. like talking to you or talking at you, so or talking to each other, talking or, to each other about I mean, really stupid shit. I've heard some of the like conversations that literally made my skin crawl while these people were talking while these this woman is like giving birth to a child, which is yeah. I feel like the, the most, most important sacred yeah it's a sacred process and these people were talking about like oh what'd you do last weekend oh what'd you have for dinner last night and like yeah. i don't know stupidish stuff in my opinion yeah so you have people coaching your pushing telling you okay hold your breath and push and like push now do you have a contraction okay push you know it's yeah. like if you wanted to do your own thing you could you could say okay shut the fuck up everyone be quiet right now. You could totally do that, but like not many women, especially first-time moms, know that they can do that. Yeah. And again, it's the idea of like do you want to be fighting an uphill battle for yeah. yourself and like having to advocate for yourself while right. you're giving birth. So usually the nurse 
will tell your support person um, to help them hold your legs back. So you're laying on your back, but they're holding your legs, your knees <sighs> up towards your ears. God. So you're like in this deep squat, but on your back, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're basically, things. yeah, you're basically trapped. You're like pinned to the bed and you have people telling you when to push and when oh to breathe God. and when to hold your breath. And um, on top of this, usually I've seen a lot of this, the doctor will be pouring like oil on your vagina, your vulva, which is nice to help with the stretching, but they'll also be using their fingers to stretch the labia as the baby's coming out. Mm, yeah. Now, why someone felt like this was a good idea to start doing, they used to do episiotomies, which if people don't know what an episiotomy is, is when the baby's coming out, they assume that your vagina is going to tear, so they cut your vagina. Preemptively. Pre yeah, prophylactic, preemptively, yeah. So that people don't really do anymore. So, thank God. Didn't <laughs> they do that to your mom without, was, was that what happened? They did that yeah. to your mom without telling her? No, she told them she didn't want an epidural. And I, I'm hoping my mom is okay with talking about this. I think she would oh, be. Oh, okay. But, well, um, we don't have to talk about it. Yeah, she told them she didn't want an episiotomy. Okay. And the doctor was like, okay. But then my dad saw them getting the scissors for the episiotomy. Right. And he, you know, cut the doctor cut the episiotomy with, you know, even though my mom had given birth like five times already at that point, wow, you know, yeah. and obviously her vagina was capable, her vulva was capable of stretching. Anyway, so because they don't, I'm assuming it's because they don't do episiotomies anymore, but they feel like they have to do, they have to get their hands in right. there somehow. They're like stretch, using their fingers right. to stretch open your vulva. Remember I saw that one birth video that was like a quote unquote beautiful birth video and it's just this doctor, like, with his hands all up in this woman's vagina doing that. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, get your, like, what? The baby's coming out. Yeah. The baby's coming out. You don't need to do anything. Right. Plus, uh, I'm sure tearing is probably more likely in a hospital because of all of the interventions and the tension that might right. be in the mom's body. Also, many women are giving birth with an epidural, so they can't really, like, feel what's going on down there anyway. Mm. So maybe because of those reasons, tearing might be more likely, but tearing heals better. There have been a lot of studies on this as well. It's better for your body to tear naturally if it's going to tear than to be cut. Right. So anyway, doctor stretching your labia open, um, then other people touching your baby before you as your baby comes out you know mm -hmm. it's gloved hands that are touching the baby sometimes the doctor will pass the baby to the nurse instead of passing the baby to the mom mm -hmm. um so first a doctor then a nurse the nurse is like you know maybe putting the baby on the warmer or maybe putting the baby on mom's chest but they're like rubbing the baby you know trying to stimulate the baby to breathe mm -hmm. everyone at the hospital has this idea the baby needs to breathe ASAP, you know, and if you watch natural births, for example, chosen, yes, our second baby. But if you watch natural okay. births, um, like home births that are done in a physiological way, meaning like a hands off way where the mom is just led to do birth however she wants and the baby comes out, sometimes it takes a while for this baby to transition, right? And that's physiological, right? You don't have to like 
stimulate a baby unless there are signs that a baby needs help. Right. But this practice that they do at the hospital is across the board. Healthy babies, right. not healthy babies. They're vigorously rubbing the baby, wiping all the stuff off its body, putting a hat on, right. sucking its nose out, sucking its mouth out. Okay, so devil's advocate here. Um, I'm a person who wants to give birth at a hospital. I'm listening to this podcast and I'm thinking, okay, well, I want my baby to breathe and do all these things. Why is that quote unquote bad? Why would I not want the doctor and the nurses to do those things? And also what is the alternative? What, what would I maybe want them to do so the alternative I'll start with that is just allowing the process to unfold physiologically and because partially because I I know this intuitively not necessarily empirically with data but partially because of all of us like for example me you the doctors and nurses who work in hospitals mm -hmm. they were they were all birthed at some point and they were all vigorously stimulated or smacked on the butt or held upside down like they used to do to get to breathe. And so this moment, this precious moment of when a baby comes out is often filled with stress, anxiety, people's past trauma that they're bringing in themselves. Right. So allowing the process to unfold physiologically looks different than a baby breathing normally. And that's fine. That's okay. The mom, knows intuitively usually if she's you know not drugged or whatever whether or not her baby is fine mm -hmm. she should be the one who asks for help if she needs it mm -hmm. if the baby needs it and like for example you mentioned earlier chosen's birth our second baby he didn't breathe for seven minutes yeah but if you're at home and no one's like you know clamping and cutting the cord and rushing taking your whisking your baby off somewhere else like our cord was still attached, baby's still getting oxygen through that blood. Right. And he's fine. You know, right. he ended up breathing eventually with a little bit of help from me mm -hmm. because I asked my midwife, is he okay? And Should she, I give him breaths? Yeah. She instructed me like, yeah, give him some breaths, do postural drainage. Like, you know, we made it work over the course of seven minutes. Right. Whereas in a hospital. And hold on, can you take a step back? When the cord is still attached yes the baby can get oxygen through the cord right for how long after the baby you know i've i saw i literally saw a video of someone doing resuscitation on a baby that had the, the this is in a war zone so this is like a oh, chaotic wow. situation so this baby is probably i think I remember you telling me stressed because mm -hmm. of the war zone mm -hmm. you know so this I think it was a bomb that went off. Mm, this pregnant wow. lady was needing to be resuscitated herself. And they, uh, her baby was born. I can't remember if it was C-section or. Oh, so this is in a hospital? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. This is like a, a war zone yeah. hospital, okay. you know? Wow. So the baby's born, they're doing resuscitation on the baby. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that it was, the cord was cut at this point. But they did resuscitation for 22 minutes. For 22 minutes. Wow. And then the baby spontaneously started mm -hmm. breathing again. And this is not even a baby that's connected to... I think they cut the cord, if I'm remembering correctly. But you could see the 
cord was the first thing that started pulsing when the baby started coming around mm. because that's how they're getting their oxygen in their blood. Those veins right. and arteries are still connected. Right. So if you're at home or whatever and no one's rushing to... But, can you, but you didn't answer the question. That was awesome info. But so the question was how long... I was saying oh. at home, if you're not somewhere where someone's rushing to cut and clamp the cord, your baby can take a really long time okay. to come up, to come into their body, you know, to transition. And usually, you know, if it takes long, I don't know what is, what an amount of time is, you okay. know, it just depends on the baby and the, and the individual, right. I'm, I'm guessing. But longer than what probably most people would think. Yeah. Longer than what most people would think. For sure. I mean, like our son was seven, seven minutes, minutes. Yeah. and this baby on this video was 22 minutes. Yeah. So if you have someone who's willing to give you that time, like these, we did resuscitation on both Chosen and the baby in the video. I mean, we didn't, but resuscitation was done. So if you have someone who's willing and knowledgeable about doing that in a, in a way that's, you know, not traumatic right. and in a grounded way, then babies can come around and turn out fine. But they do pretty much everything preemptively. Yeah, I just um, studied for the NRP, which is the Neonatal Resuscitation Certification, and they they start the clock as soon as the baby's out, and they want the baby to be, you know, ninety percent oxygen saturation within ten minutes, I believe. Hmm. So that's their time. They're thinking like zero minutes to 10 minutes mm -hmm. like that's the normal range for them so mm -hmm. anything that strays from that path they're thinking they need to intervene so right. for example if it's but in the hospital they're doing these things at right minute zero right and they're doing them to every baby healthy or no otherwise yeah. yeah i saw i had a client who gave birth i think it was 35 or 36 weeks so they consider consider term at 37 weeks mm -hmm. So her baby came out, great tone, great color, perfect APGAR scores. I think it was like 9 and 10. What's an APGAR score? APGAR score For is those like... those people who don't know, I don't know what it is. <laughs> APGAR score is like how they score babies in the hospital on like how well they're doing, transitioning. Huh. So 10 is the highest. Obviously. And uh, this baby, I think, was like 9 and 10. Oh, I remember this. And yep, they yep, yep. still took the baby away from the mom mm -hmm. and took it to the NICU. Mm -hmm. They wrapped it up, put it by the mom's head for her to kiss, and then took the baby away. And I said, wait, 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 wait. This baby is really healthy with really good APGAR scores. Do you need to take this baby to the NICU? Yeah. And the nurse got so scared and anxious and was like, uh, 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 like no one had ever questioned her taking the baby to right. the NICU before or something. And uh, she was like, yeah, because the baby's so early. It's like, just because the baby is born before a certain amount of time, when it's literally the picture of health. Right. Perfect tone and color. Perfect APGAR scores. They're taking it away, quote unquote, just because it's early. Yeah. Like that's Everything's a, just in case. Yeah. Because they're they risk didn't, averse. Because if they didn't take the baby away and something happens, they would get in trouble but you know what happened they did take the baby away and something did happen but just not something that the mom probably would think to pin on the hospital which right. is that her milk had a long time she had trouble having her milk come in right she had postpartum 
preeclampsia, postpartum preeclampsia, which is like another health issue. Anyway, she had other Am stuff. Am I going remembering on. that your milk is less likely to come in when the baby is taken away from oh, you? Oh, for is sure. That, okay, so your baby, you need to have your baby. Why don't on you? Yeah. So why don't you talk about why? Yeah. Those thing, why you would want the baby to be put on your chest mm -hmm. right when the baby's born and spend yeah. time. And so there's why... like literally 1 million studies on this. Mm -hmm. And just, I'm going to go more into detail on the hormonal interplay of labor and birth too later in this podcast, but we should also just do a whole nother podcast on For this. Sure. So when your baby's born, if you were to give birth in the wild, you would mm -hmm. pick your baby up, you would put it on your chest, you would, you know, smell it, kiss it, talk to it, make eye contact, and all of these things start... Spank it. <laughs> Hold it upside down. <laughs> no. Um, all of these things start this, like, you know, Connection. sequence mm -hmm. of hormonal steps that mm -hmm. happen within the baby and within the mom. So in order for a mom's milk to come in, you know, really well and to be established really well, she needs to have her baby there smelling it, looking at it, touching it, skin to skin contact. The baby needs to be like nursing on the breast, even if in the beginning it's not really getting much milk. Right. That's signaling the right. physical stimulation of the breast as oxytocin. well. Oxytocin. Yeah. Oxytocin helps make milk and prolactin. So adrenaline. And these are naturally occurring hormones. hormones. So adrenaline is an antagonist mm. for oxytocin and for and two high levels of catecholamines, which is another stress ho hormone that is beneficial at some levels during birth. Mm. Two high levels inhibit prolactin. So if you're stressed, which any mom is, whether she consciously realizes it or not, when she doesn't have her newly born baby with her. Right. It's a natural reaction. Then you have more adrenaline and you're not going to have as much of the other stuff that's mm -hmm. good for you and the baby. More of the bad stuff, less of the good stuff. Right. So that's what is the issue with taking a baby away from their mom. There's like literally one million um, studies And on it's this. not just milk coming in. Right. It's, it's like bonding. bonding. Your, which Happiness. Your whole relationship mm -hmm. for your entire life is... It's basically like a, like first, how they say like first impressions are, mm -hmm. and it's the same with, with birth, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it can set you up mm -hmm. for yeah. your entire life. That being said too, if for some reason there is an emergency and the baby does have to be separated, there is, there are ways of making up for lost time. Mm -hmm. You know, like you shouldn't just think like, oh my God, my baby's right. gone and like my whole fucking rest of my experience with them is going to be ruined right, because right. of this. No, it's not like that. It, you know how when you, adoptive parents get, get a baby, they still bond really right. deeply with that baby. Yeah, yeah. So there, you know, you can have the bonding experience. You might just have, you know, other it's things. It's just a, more of an uphill battle. Right, right. Yeah. More There's of an like ideal battle. and, mm -hmm. yeah, so... So yeah, besides those interventions with the baby, they usually do early cord clamping and you have to like really, really beg them to leave the cord unclamped. They're like on this timetable, ready to go to the next person's room, ready to get you stitched up and like get your placenta out of there. They, a lot of times will give you, give the birthing person, um, Pitocin if they haven't given it to them during birth 
they'll give them uh, an injection or stick some in the IV right as the baby's coming out because this makes the placenta come out right away instead of having to wait for the placenta. And they say it's because they're trying to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. But I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier, like it's the the fact that you're in a hospital having all of these interventions and like interruptions to the process that makes birth have more potential problems like postpartum right. hemorrhage. Right. So if you have the normal interplay of hormones that happen with a regular physiological hands-off birth, then postpartum hemorrhage is like very, 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 very unlikely. It is way more likely in the hospital because you are more stressed in the hospital. Right. So yeah. It's funny. They... Adrenaline works against oxytocin and oxytocin is what clamps the uterus down mm -hmm. to, to like make the blood stop flowing. Okay. So that's why they do the Pitocin. Pretty much even the, the most progressive hospitals. Quote unquote. Quote unquote progressive hospitals <laughs> will do word. the Pitocin. Like that is not a, an, it, that's like a non-issue for them. They, they are really, really, really hard to convince otherwise. But Pitocin, especially like a bolus amount, which that's what they call when you get a lot at once, has negative effects on the mom and the baby. It can negatively affect milk production even. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, it's all super connected. And, uh, it's really hard to convince them to delay cord clamping past, like you'll have to really twist their arm to get them to do like 90 seconds of delayed cord clamping. So two questions. One is, again, why would you want to delay this? Like what are the benefits of delaying a cord clamping? And also my second question is, I believe uh, they also do something with the cords and that's another motivation for them uh doing the cords early don't they like sell it yeah i was to... going to mention that so they will want to not delay cord clamping past a certain number of seconds usually 30 right usually it's like or 90 60? seconds is the maximum that they want you to do mm -hmm. and people have a hard time convincing them to do 30 seconds or 60 seconds too so they want to get the cord blood. So whether you are don't banking, quote unquote, banking your cord blood or not, the hospital a lot of times wants to get that cord blood and bank it themselves so they can do studies, especially if it's a teaching hospital. And I've seen this even at like Hogue, which is like a progressive hospital in Orange County, you know, um, people travel from far distances to give birth at Hogue. Hmm. So they want to, to take your baby's blood, you know, yeah. and the benefit of delayed cord but they clamping, also, let me only... finish this thought. The benefit okay. of delayed cord clamping, why someone would want more than like 30 or 60 or 90 seconds is because when a baby is born, like 30% of their blood is still in the placenta mm. and it, that, uh, vein and artery are going like blood is going into the baby even after the baby is born and it's also going out of the baby so there's mm. this like like they've done studies where they put the baby on a scale after it's born and the baby gets li lighter and heavier hmm. which shows that blood is going in and out it's like you're the baby is trying to reach this homeostasis right it's beautiful 
Right. You know, it's like... It's calibrating. Yeah. It's like the baby is out. saying, okay, give me more blood. Okay, that's a little too much. Okay, give me a little bit more. Yeah. Okay, that's a little bit... That's better, you know? And so... People don't realize how purposeful all of these things are and how yeah. connected everything has a process right the natural process is just so beautiful and mind-blowing if you think about it in that way but so yeah 30 percent of the baby's blood is in the placenta you can you know wait until the cord is limp and white and not pulsing anymore you compress it like you would f find your pulse or whatever and right. you can feel if is it pulsing or is it not pulsing right. so that takes time you right. know and like having a physiological third stage which is the third stage is the placenta coming out mm -hmm. so second stage is baby coming out third stage is placenta coming out having a physiological third stage takes time right and we're in this in the hospital you're in this environment where these people don't have time they don't care about time you know they care about one well they care about time one million other things yeah more than they care about your time yeah so yeah those are things that they um, want to fill your bed with another person so they can yeah and they're just scared right they're just like oh if i don't get this lady's placenta out and her cord clamped and cut then you know That's... she's gonna bleed out and i'm gonna yeah. have to deal with that or whatever right so yeah but there could be a whole nother episode on cord blood banking and like cord blood stuff but just really quickly though do they not only do they do the take it for studying their own to me for some reason i don't have as big of a problem with that but, but that's them taking the baby's blood. i know i know i'm not that's saying them prioritizing them taking the that baby's blood yeah, yeah. over the baby getting it right no same page but what i what i have a bigger problem with is them what they do i'm pretty sure is they sell it they sell they yeah a lot to of hospitals other companies who sell will study placentas it. so they're making money off of mm -hmm. that to me is more messed up than yeah so these hospitals sometimes will sell medical waste and there's a big industry for placenta right because it is like a magic organ you right. know it is it does have a lot of medicinal value and they sell it to um, like cosmetic companies or research companies and so yeah people that's people so wonder how their beauty products get like stem cells in them Right. This is how, yeah. because hospitals are selling placentas. And they're not only just selling it, but they're sacrificing your baby's, baby's health, health yeah. and your birthing process mm -hmm. so they can make a buck. Right. That is messed up. Yes. Most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So wrapping up what birth in a hospital is really like, I just want to say a couple more things about the process. And that is... Uh, yeah, in the hospital, you might have someone who, like, wants, keeps asking you if you want them to, like, a nurse will mm -hmm. come in and be like, oh, do you want me to take the baby to the nursery so you can get some sleep? Or do you want me to take the baby to give them a bath or whatever? Um, that seems helpful. Or sometimes they'll want to take the baby for doing, quote-unquote, observation or testing. Like, if the baby, for some reason, took a, a while to transition, took a while to breathe, needed to be resuscitated... And they'll say like, oh, okay, we have to take the baby to the NICU for observation now because we had to resuscitate it. So it's kind of this like snowball effect okay. of interventions, yeah. you know? Because we did this intervention, we yeah. have to do another one. So 
I, yeah, I just also want to drive home the point that, like, that baby needs to stay with its mom. Right. There is, there's all, there are a lot of studies. Even if this baby has issues, even if the baby needs to be observed or tested, do it in the mom's room. Right. You know, so keep that's the another baby... option. You can say, you can request that, right? Yeah. Didn't you do that with a client? Uh, I don't remember. I know you've at least requested it or something, but... But yeah, you you probably have to sign an against medical advice form and they might scare you and say like, you're putting your baby's life at risk if we don't observe them in the NICU. Mm -hmm. But really it's just more work for them to observe the baby in your room. Right. Which I don't care. Like the right. lifelong benefits of a baby staying with its mom mm -hmm. far outweigh the inconvenience of like a nurse having to walk down the hallway to your room instead of sitting in a chair in the NICU. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, that brings up another point is that a hospital, you they scare you so much. Like, there are so many things that they just mention offhand even that, like, trigger stressful warning signs in a right. mom's brain. Or even, like, oh, your baby has jaundice. You know, you need to, like, not breastfeed and we need to give the baby formula because we need to get this jaundice taken care of right away. Where, But, like, in reality... Jaundice can sometimes be physiological, which means normal in some babies, mm -hmm. especially if the baby didn't get all of its blood mm. or if it got. Uh, so from doing the early cord, cord clamping, clamping or even that... delayed cord clamping, sometimes if the baby, if there was that bolus injection of Pitocin, mm. maybe the baby got too much blood from the placenta clamping down ah. um, from the uterus clamping down too quickly or whatever. There's a, yeah, we don't really know, but sometimes jaundice is physiological and normal. And the best treatment for jaundice, I'm going off on a tangent here, but <laughs> is breast milk, feeding mm. often, all the time, and staying with the mom. It's not separating the baby from the mom right. so that the baby is more stressed. And it's not giving the baby formula because when you start giving a baby formula, that's meals that the baby is not getting from its mom which is signaling the mom's body that she doesn't need to produce as much milk mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so it sets them up for poor yeah milk, milk supply for the future so yeah anyway it's not always it's not always like the worst case scenario when you're giving birth in a hospital i don't want to paint this like sinister picture of this hospital as like a terrible place to give birth because some women need to or want to give birth at a hospital and that's totally fine but I think it's rare for someone to have a super magical birth right. experience at a hospital. Right. It's like much more common for someone feeling like something's not quite right with the experience that they had. Right. And maybe they don't know what it is that's not quite right. Right. But like intuitively, women know that like, oh, that doesn't feel like, is it supposed to feel like this after I have a baby? You know, right. like there's something that's not quite right and they can't put the pieces together because they don't. Really I know, know that there's like this other yeah yeah but yeah all these things these things that we talked about are all and there's like a lot there's like a whole lot of other interventions that could possibly happen at a hospital i didn't touch on like every single one i just talked about right that's a possible outcome but i just talked about like well, what like a normal <laughs> what a normal just everyday average birth in a hospital that doesn't have like a ton of interventions looks like, you know, I mean, I'm taught, this is relatively speaking, uh, you know, even in, isn't it something like a lot of hospitals do like 50% to 
C-sections. And yeah, some hospitals. Yes. So talking, I mean. We can, well, I'll have we'll another do a different, episode. I know, but I'm just saying. Yeah. You were talking about, oh, a normal birth in a hospital, whereas, you know, I just want to yeah. throw that out there. There are many hospitals where 50% of the people in there get a C-section. So that is, quote, unquote, normal mm-hmm. in a lot of hospitals. And people don't realize that. Right. And it becomes this emergency medical whatever situation. Yeah. And that brings me to my next thing I wanted to talk about. talk about is, like, why does it matter that all of these mm-hmm. things happen? Like, what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. But, and we touched on this earlier, is that hormones are so important during labor and birth. And there's like a delicate ba- balance of hormonal interplay that occurs in an undisturbed physiological birth. And yeah, this deserves its own podcast episode. But just to go over it quickly, there's like a handful of hormones that we know about that interact with each other in a very sophisticated way. So during like, birth. Yes. You may, like we talked earlier about adrenaline and oxytocin. Mm -hmm. The more adrenaline you have, the more stressed you are, the more interrupted you are, the more cold you are or feeling unsafe or these bright lights, like all of that causes your adrenaline level to rise, which causes your oxytocin level to lower. Right. So, um, oxytocin, did we talk about what oxytocin is actually? Um, I don't. So so. oxytocin is a hormone that's released during birth and also during orgasm and like when feel good things are happening, hugs, you know, when you're like, you know, doing good things for other people, you release oxytocin as well. But so during birth, it's released in pulses from the brain and it makes the uterus contract in waves, Mm -hmm. you know, so not contracting for the whole time, but contracting, releasing, contracting, releasing. So that helps open the cervix and then eventually gathers all the uterus muscles to the top and pushes the baby out that way. Mm -hmm. So um, oxytocin, like we said, is also like a feel-good hormone. So it's helping to counteract the sensations, the intense sensations of labor. Some people call this labor pain, Pain. but it's not painful for everyone. Like when I had chosen, there wasn't pain. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So might sound like pain. <laughs> but it's... So, yeah. So you could imagine that uh base yeah, so if you imagine the uterus as a giant muscle, like mm-hmm. imagine you're running a marathon and you get a cramp in your leg. Like, yeah, you're using your uterus a lot. So maybe it does not feel good if you don't have as much oxytocin. Right. pumping through your body, you know. So you can imagine that if you are like frequently interrupted and have strangers watching you and asking you questions that you would have more adrenaline Mm -hmm. and less oxytocin, which means this is kind of like a snowball effect, which means your contractions aren't as strong. Maybe your labor quote unquote stalls, you know, or maybe your labor, your contractions are more painful Mm -hmm. because you don't have as much oxytocin. And this is why also hospitals use a ton of synthetic oxytocin so Mm. first they cause the problem right and then they try to fix the problem by using a synthetic version of the hormone that they're disrupting right (laughs) um so synthetic oxytocin isn't released from the brain it's injected into your vein and it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier in any kind of significant amount 
So you have this hormone coursing through your body, this fake hormone coursing through your body that's making your contractions stronger. Your uterus is working harder mm. and it's not pulsing. It's continuous. So there's mm. no break. So that's why when people get Pitocin, their contractions are like sometimes one long contraction yeah. instead of, you know, Natural. manageable. Yeah. yeah. So um, that doesn't have the pain relieving effects of oxytocin release from the brain where it actually yeah okay and then that leads to more so let use me, of pain medication so let me make sure i'm understanding this and so the other people are understanding this correctly when you have natural oxytocin it's not only affecting your uterus and contracting blah blah mm -hmm. blah but also it's helping your mind kind of like uh cope with the yeah the sensors in your body that feel pain aren't sending messages as quickly or frequently to your brain because that you are feeling pain. Got it. Because and the oxytocin is kind of like relieving the pain and right. also kind of like affecting your brain in a way that it doesn't receive those messages in the same way. Got it. And the synthetic version is doing everything in your body that the regular oxytocin does, except not in... It doesn't go to your brain. Right. Got it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's still, you're feeling more pain and, uh, is that correct? Yes. Or, okay. Another thing that I didn't even put in my notes that I'm just thinking about now is like hormonal oxytocin, natural oxytocin that we produce in our body does get to the baby and mm. helps the baby feel good as it's being squished mm. through the birth canal. Mm-hmm. And synthetic oxytocin does not have mm. the same effect on the baby that natural oxytocin does. Got it. So, yeah, the baby may, might feel more intense contractions, but not without having the calming, soothing effects of the oxytocin. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So that affects how it feels about its mom and the experience. And... Yeah, I mean, you could stress a baby right out, you yeah. know, by... Yeah making super strong contractions okay and then the baby gets stressed and then what do they suggest c-section right so it's a snowball effect calming and peaceful or you know an epidural you know so anyway um this episode's not going to go into super great detail about <laughs> hormones of birth but even though it just did yeah, even bit. though we just did a little bit. <laughs> but there's so many studies on this, and we don't even know, like, half of the way that these interruptions are, in like, forcing birth in a certain way mm -hmm. um, in spite of the in interruptions affect our relationship with our babies and our babies, you know, long-term effects. Like, just one more thing. There are a lot of studies that show that synthetic oxytocin or pitocin used during childbirth negatively affects the mother's and the baby's oxytocin receptors for the rest of their lives. Mm. So the mom doesn't have as many receptors for this feel-good chemical that mm. she needs in order to produce milk and bond with her baby. Or just to be happy. And the Yeah, right? and the baby doesn't have as many receptors. For the rest of their life. For the rest of their life. Right. As they normally would if they would have gone through the process without this synthetic pitocin. So, right. Wow. Anyway, that's huge. Yeah. So this is why mm -hmm. all this stuff matters. 
That's yes. essentially just kind of coming back to the point mm-hmm. of why, okay, well, they're doing these things in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. well, it has all these things have a, uh, what is it called? Uh, an action, a reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, an action has a reaction. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Cascading series of reactions yeah. for the rest of yeah. your life. Not just birth. Anyway. This episode was supposed to be about what giving birth in a hospital is really like. And I think that, yeah, you know. I think we went over that and more. So. Because most people, most people just don't know. Yeah. It's just doctor, that's it, mm-hmm. hospital, okay. But they don't know actually like what it yeah. feels like. And I think you painted a pretty good picture of what it's like. And you did only go over like pretty much the surface level surface stuff. level yeah. of what m- pretty much most yeah 99% of people experience experience mm-hmm. you know and then there are other things that we didn't discuss as much that they do but that's just like a normal everyday birth this yeah. isn't some you know outlier experience right. that we just talked about this right. is this is what it, it really is like to give birth in a hospital for 99% of people. Yeah. Another thing we didn't even touch on is like what the experience is like for the partner. Mm. You know, like imagine giving, imagine you witnessing this. Right. Like as a partner in a hospital versus you witnessing it as a partner in home, at home. You right. Know? Anyway, that's another wormhole to go down. But anyway, this is a long podcast episode so far so cool it's a good one long and good yeah anyway um i think that about wraps it up let's wrap it up baby if you are listening and you made it this far thank you for listening if you like what you hear in this and you're welcome (laughs) if you like what you hear in this podcast feel free to subscribe write us a review share it with your family and friends Um, this podcast is available on all podcast, uh, platforms. So even if you have a friend who doesn't have Apple podcasts or whatever, you can share it with them on Google play or Spotify. And if you want to get in touch with us, um, my email is love at ashleycarver.com. You can find me on Instagram at ashleycarverbirth and Taylor can be found at uh, I manage money for other people in the stock market. Uh, my website is darksky.capital. Um, you can email me uh, at uh, taylor at darksky.capital. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, thanks again for listening. And uh, we welcome any feedback you have or any questions. And we hope you have a excellent rest of your day and we will talk to you soon catch you later